Listen to all of Wild Cornell Medicine's informative podcasts at wildcornell.org slash podcasts. Welcome to Wild Cornell Medicine CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm your host, Dr. John Leonard, and today's topic will be innovative breakthroughs in cancer care and research. Today's guest is my good friend and colleague, Dr. David Nannis. Dr. Nannis is Chief of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Wild Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital, an international leader in the treatment of kidney, prostate, bladder, and testicular cancers, Dr. Nannis is actively involved in research initiatives to bring new therapies for patients. David, it's great to have you here today. Thank you for taking the time. John, I just want to say uh, thanks for having me on your inaugural podcast, and I look forward to its success in the coming months and years, and it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with you. So we're going to get into in a minute some of the new and exciting areas in cancer care, cancer research and treatment. But uh, I know a number of the members of our audience are patients or family members. I mean, why just as we get into this, and I think getting access to some of these new technologies is one reason why patients should at least look into research. But what are some of the other reasons why patients, from the patient perspective, somebody dealing with a serious illness, a cancer diagnosis, why should they... Uh, either seek out participation in research or treatment at an academic center um, and participation in studies? What are some of the key advantages there? So the first advantage I would say, which is often overlooked, is that there's many studies out there that show that patients who actually are in clinical trials get better care and have better outcomes. And I'm not talking about just that they live longer. I'm saying their ancillary care, their quality of life, their management of symptoms is actually better on a clinical trial. So there's a perception by patients, oh, if I go on a trial, it's an experiment, it's going to be worse than standard of care. I'm only going to go on a trial at the very end when there's nothing left. That's that's actually incorrect. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, for years we've shown that that patients, if you look, do surveys of patients on studies that get the treatment arm versus let's say a placebo arm or the standard of care arm, they do better. Mm-hmm. They have a better experience with cancer. When you go on a study, you become part of that study. You have a team taking care of you, and you're informed, and you help with the decisions. And then finally, there's the real personal benefit, which is, hey, you know, you get a new investigational agent. John took care of my sister-in-law, had lymphoma. She went on a clinical trial. She's alive eight years later, doing fantastic. Uh, you know, so that that's the personal uh, benefit. And then there's obviously the altruistic collective benefit of advancing science and helping other patients. It's about other patients you don't want to suffer like you and your family suffer. And it is about the patient and their family. Great. So so one of the things we wanted to do in, in this episode was kind of do a bit of a round robin of some of the hot areas in cancer care. And I think these are areas that are exciting. They're buzzwords. People read about them in the paper. Certainly a lot of research here going on at, and at other centers around the country. Um, and I, I would say that all of these areas are exciting and they all have limitations. And so um, we're going to actually in future episodes go into a lot more depth 
uh, on all of these areas. But I think it would be great. I mean, you sit in a in a unique place where you're building programs here. You're you're leading um, aspects of our center and where we're investing when we're where we're investing where we're um, focusing some of our research efforts. So we're going to talk over the next few minutes about areas uh, that people have heard about, such as genomic profiling, precision medicine, immunotherapy, CAR T cells, uh, liquid biopsies, treatment resistance. All of these are kind of buzzwords that um, you know, you can go to a, a medical meeting or a research meeting and spend a whole three or four days talking about. But let's just kind of in a in a rapid fire thing, give people a flavor of kind of, we'll start with genomic profiling and precision medicine kind of briefly. What is that area? Why, why could that be great? And where, where are the limitations of that area as it stands right now? I think that there is, this is probably one of the more you know, exciting areas of medicine. And I'm going to f- make it very simple uh, for, for patients. So historically, that was it really was the site of origin. So to think about it, where the cancer began, that's how we define cancer. As technology advanced, as molecular biology advanced, as research advanced, we realized that we could analyze tumors by their DNA, uh, their proteins, you know, going very deep. And we saw that it wasn't so much about where a cancer began, though that still is important, but or the cell of origin, but really what is those those genetic abnormalities that are in the cancer itself that can help define that. So one tumor that could arise in the lung or the liver or the stomach may have the same genetic abnormality. And some of those genetic abnormalities actually uh, create vulnerabilities or, or uh, make the cancer a little bit weak to certain treatments. So if you say, well, this is the abnormality that's making this cancer grow and spread, if I can find a drug or an intervention that targets that abnormality, regardless of if it started in the lung or the stomach or the liver, maybe I can impact the patient. And that's really what uh, this whole concept of genomic profiling and precision medicine is about. It's, it's being precise meaning that we're going to take your tumor, we're going to sequence it, look at its abnormalities, and more importantly, then we want to use targeted therapy to attack that tumor, regardless of where it is. And we've been very successful. I mean, I have patients that have bladder cancer on breast cancer treatments that are you know, alive and appear to be cured. Unfortunately, there's some of these common abnormalities. We still have not developed the drug that kills them. Like Maybe people may have heard of RAS, R-A-S, but uh, as an example. But that's coming. I'm confident with the continued research, we will be able to develop new drugs and new approaches that will kill these cancers. So getting your tumor profiled, using that information to guide therapy is really state-of-the-art medicine that can only be done you know, initially at major academic centers, now it can be done commercially, and that's really made a huge impact on how we care for our patients. And I think the greatest uh, uh, impact of this is yet to come. There was an interesting debate, I think, at the AACR meeting not long ago where, um, you know, giving examples of success, but also um, potential criticisms that um, it's really a limited number of patients in some areas where this has had an impact, but over time that should continue to grow. So I want to move now to another area that is really uh, hot and there are a, there are a lot of discussions around uh, immunotherapy and we have these immune checkpoint inhibitors. We have in a more, um, I don't want to say extreme way, but perhaps uh, uh, involved way and patient-specific way 
way the CAR T cells. But tell us just kind of your sense of, of, in a big sense, why is immunotherapy such an important potential modality and where does that stand in treating cancer? So first, to, just to follow up on the what we just said about genomic profiling, the, the and that's where you have a therapy that targets a specific abnormality or mutation. The uh, cool thing about immunotherapy is that really doesn't matter, right? So you, if you have a tumor and immunotherapy is effective, it's regardless of what the genetic abnormalities are. And that's why some of the same drugs can be used in many different tumor types. And actually, the more mutations you hit, studies are showing that the more mutations you have, the more likely immunotherapy is going to work. And, and really what it does is it unleashes your own immune system to fight the cancer. We've know from, known for many years that tumors can turn off the immune system in the area of the tumor. So what these new drugs do is they turn back on the immune system and it attacks the tumor. Now that leads to some side effects potentially because if your immune system is activated, it may attack you, meaning so you could attack your liver, your lung, your joints, your skin, et cetera. Though hopefully, you know, and we're fairly good at, at controlling those side effects. So I think this is also one of the more exciting areas of cancer. I think, I do believe it's it works, but not in enough patients, and that's that's one of the difficulties I think we as clinicians have is some patients it works great, and if it works in you as an individual patient, it can be a real home run and even a cure, but unfortunately still it isn't working in a lot of patients. This is where research and clinical trials come into play again because now we're you know we're doing new types of immune uh, therapy uh, combinations, trying to figure out what's the best approach to really allow your immune system to attack your tumor. So this, again, is a very promising, really exciting area of treatment. Um, and I've seen many patients benefit that I know years ago would not be alive today that are still alive and with their families and, and, and everything's you know, going extremely well for them. So it's something to continue to look forward to. I think it will continue to grow and, and impact our patients. One, one of the areas more commonly uh, explored, and we now have uh, a couple of, of drugs available more in the hematologic malignancies, although they will be at least studied in, in solid tumors more, is the concept of CAR T cells or chimeric antigen receptor T cells. This is an area we'll talk more about uh, in the future, but it really involves taking uh, from a patient their own T cells, which are uh, immune cells that help to fight infections, but that can be engineered in a laboratory to better target tumor cells, reinfused into the patient, um, like a fancy transfusion, um, and then can basically go throughout the patient's body, uh, seek out the tumor cells and develop an immune response against them. And so that's another area that has received a lot of attention. We'll talk more about, we have a, approved drugs now in uh, leukemia and lymphoma and a lot of research going on there. Some toxicities as you alluded to going on there as well. So, um, you know, this is an exciting field and getting a lot of attention, but in general, um, you will also alluded to the toxicities of immunotherapy. Um, uh, does this all speak to the importance of doing this in a systematic way and participating in studies rather than kind of willy-nilly saying, well, you have a bad tumor, let's try immunotherapy and see what happens, um, and maybe we'll get lucky, but often we won't. What's, uh, what's the approach there? So there's, there are a lot of, there is a lot of work going on in, in immunotherapy, um, 
we have some great examples of kind of uh, mirac- miraculous or very heroic responses in people in difficult situations. But on the other hand, there are uh, lots of people who don't benefit or who, who haven't benefited. Uh, I think that the, the the concept of, you know, is this something that should be giving to people in a willy-nilly sort of fashion, or um, is it much better, obviously, to, to think about it in clinical trials and in new rational approaches? Um, I, you know, what's your take on that? Because a lot of patients are asking about this, and when people face desperate situations, um, you know, looking at this in a very logical fashion makes a lot of sense. I got an email this week from a patient specifically about CAR teeth therapy. His father had a solid tumor and, and, you know, and I explained to him, this is what's we're seeing, like you said, in leukemia and lymphoma, uh, moving forward. These are very toxic, potentially toxic therapies with a really high upside and should be done in an academic center, uh, even a center that does bone marrow transplants because the patients can be so uh, sick from the treatment. That said, it's very exciting. And for the right patient, uh, this is you know a, a road to cure. So I think we need to move forward. There's a lot of research going on in taking this concept of your T, activating your T cells to fight many types of cancer. I, always, I do think in the future, it's, it will be limited regardless uh, because of the expense and the side effects, but it is an exciting area and more to come. And the only way we're gonna move this forward is by patients agreeing to enroll on clinical studies. So another area that has gotten some attention and one you've been, been been very involved with, particularly in prostate cancer, is the concept of liquid biopsies, circulating tumor cells, circulating tumor DNA. Patients are familiar with the concept of having to get a biopsy when they're diagnosed, maybe surgery when they're diagnosed, uh, and then wanting to track what's going on with the tumor over time and having to get repeated biopsies, the concept of not having to get surgery, of not having to get um, you know, needle biopsies and being able to track markers of the tumor in the, in the patient's blood um, sounds very attractive. So what, tell us about your work in that area and where you see that field going. So patients in general undergo a lot of different therapies through their life with cancer. Uh, you know, from diagnosis to one treatment, they relapse another treatment, and this can go on for years and years. And cancer cells in some way uh, are, if you can think of it like a, a, a bacteria. So you have a bacteria treated with one antibiotic, what grows back is a little bit more resistant. You select with the antibiotic, then you give them another antibiotic, what grows back is even more resistant. And you have to define that resistance. And we actually do that, right? We take a culture of the bacteria, we put it go to the lab, we say, well, this antibiotic used to work, now it doesn't work and so forth. It doesn't, it's not so simple in cancer, uh, in part because you would have to go out and do invasive biopsies, you'd have to stick a needle somewhere, you'd have to try and hope that that's representative of the whole um, you know, of what's going on in the entire body. And, and obviously it's, it happens over time. So it could be months later, you now cancers after responding to a treatment's getting worse. And now, well, what's going on? Why is it resistant? So we've moved more towards this concept of a liquid biopsy, meaning that can we draw a tube of blood and extract either circulating cancer cells that are released from the tumor that are floating in your circulation and analyze them. Or more recently, over the last few years, even just the DNA that comes from the tumor, we can differentiate DNA from a cancer cell because of mutations from DNA from the normal and use that information to guide therapy and say, oh God, you gotta have a new mutation. So in lung cancer, for instance, there's an FDA approved test 
patient goes on a, a treatment for lung cancer with a certain type of lung cancer. They're doing fine. It's getting worse. You do a, take a tube of blood and say, oh, they have a new mutation in that gene that we were targeting. Now we're going to give them a new drug specifically for that gene. So that's strictly, that's a liquid biopsy. Historically, you'd have to do a, try and take them to the, you know, get a real biopsy, which has potential complications. So that's real advancement. And I guess the biggest advancement is just the ability to do this quickly over time and sequentially and, and continually guide your therapy. Um, so I think this whole idea of using blood tests to treat patients to inquire about what's going on in the cancer is really also one of the really hot topics of today. And it all speaks to technology. What we can do today is unbelievable. And there's companies and, and research laboratories that are continually improving on this technology. And I think ultimately, you know, the, the, the vision of the future is we draw a tube of blood and we, in a normal patient, and say, wow, you have early stomach cancer based on this. We need to go look and try and find it. And I think that's, that's the, you know, what people are hoping uh, in the future. So, so patients ask about this, and it sounds great. On the other hand, you work in prostate cancer. So when we talk about sampling the blood for tumors, kind of what's the, does it make a difference? In terms of, you know, the, uh, is it already making an impact? Yes. So, we know that many tumor types have defects in their ability to repair DNA damage. Okay, so if there's, and, and they have proteins that normally repair DNA, and if they're not working well, if they're mutated, the patients, you know, develop cancer or their cancer can progress. We have drugs that will work in those patients who have DNA damage repair abnormalities. We can test that and we can identify that in a liquid biopsy. So already today, information with liquid biopsy, a blood test can be used to guide therapy. I think it's only going to continue to improve and expand. So, so that leads us to, I think, the last topic that we, we were going to get into today, and that is the concept of treatment resistance. Patients all the time, uh, obviously, they, they are diagnosed, they get a treatment, the treatment works, maybe it doesn't work, the disease comes back. What are some of the the latest thoughts on on treatment resistance? And obviously, that's evolved from the standpoint of chemotherapy treatment resistance, and now some of the new targeted therapies with resistance to um, more targeted treatments, immunotherapies. What in a big picture? What are some of the hot areas there in the current thinking, uh, in a general sense, about resistance to treatment and cancer? So. Cancer cells evolve, and they evolve by making you know new mutations and new abnormalities, or trying to bypass uh, different blocked pathways. And without getting too technical, this is this is normal. I mean, you would expect an organism as highly developed as us would have a lot of pathways that are redundant or that you know, are similar in order for us to survive uh, adverse situations. So cancer cells take advantage of that and they say, oh, you blocked this pathway with a drug. Oh, I'm going to take this. I'm going to take the side street to get there. The main highway is blocked just like we do every day when we drive to work in New York. John and I both live in Westchester. We come to work. We got some days we got to go through Queens. So cancer cells are very similar in their ability to do that. So research is discovering that. We say, oh, wow, this worked and now it's not working. Why? And we say, oh, well, they're taking, us, they're taking a bypass road or there's a new mutation. Well, what if we start in the beginning and give two drugs 
and say we're going to block not only the main highway, but the the, uh, the you know the, the other way to get there, and that can sometimes be more effective. So it's un, that's where research comes in, understanding resistance and sensitivity, right? So I mean, just if you have a drug, and this is what's happened in the last few years. So we give a drug to patients with lung cancer, and it worked five percent of the time. We say this drug is not working. You know, and we put it back on the shelf and and move on. Now we say, well, wait a second. If you have this mutation, this drug works 100% of the time. And gee, 5% of patients with lung cancer have this mutation. So suddenly you say, okay, I'm going to use this drug only in that patient population with that mutation. And it's a home run. It works all the time. So that's where this idea of, you know, treatment sensitivity, treatment resistance, guiding therapy based on that makes a big difference. And, and even in those patients, sometimes they develop resistance. And then we say, oh, well, well, now we know why. Let's develop a new drug. So it's not only understanding what the resistance mechanism is, but quickly on coming up with a new strategy to combat that resistance so we can treat the cancer and kill the cancer. Great. Well, David, you know, we, we've touched on a number of different topics today as a, for, for someone who might be a patient out there or a family member of a patient who's trying to, to navigate uh, cancer treatment and, and obviously these very challenging diagnoses. As you, uh, as you guide patients, as you guide uh, 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 others dealing with cancer, what are the, the key, key messages for patients to think about as they uh, are kind of navigating the system, being confronted with a diagnosis that can help them avail themselves of, of some of these new advances to hopefully have a better outcome? First of all, I, I, I recognize, as I know you do, that cancer is very scary. It's scary for patients. It's scary for patients' families. It's probably one of the biggest fear that everybody has. Uh, they feel a lump in their neck and they say, oh, my God, I'm dying of cancer. So we have to recognize is, uh, that there's a lot of anxiety and patients need to understand that's normal, right? That, that's part of the process of cancer. It's not just getting a disease, getting a drug. And so patients need to be informed. They have to understand they, what their disease is, what the treatment options are, um, and enlist family members. I think advocacy is, is very important. I'm a big believer in advocacy and, pro, and involved in a lot of prostate advocacy. You know, patients and their families need to be empowered because not even every doctor in the community knows everything. You know, if I'm a doctor taking care of 10 different cancer types, it's not like coming to me. All I think about, you know, maybe is prostate cancer. I know a lot about prostate cancer. I wouldn't, you wouldn't come to me to, if you had breast cancer because that's not what I do. But in the community, it's a little bit more difficult. So you have to understand the limitations. And there's, like I said, many great doctors out there. Uh, but sometimes you need to, you know, go to an expert but and enlist your family and friends. I also think the misconception, which I said earlier, that clinical trials are for late-stage patients. Clinical trials should be your first question. Am I eligible for a clinical trial doctor? What's, you know, what is the standard of care? Is this going to cure me? Is there a possibility if I did something else? Because really what happens is once you go down a treatment pathway, uh, sometimes you're not eligible for a trial because it's for a certain state of disease, a certain time in the treatment path uh, that you can get, get on that study. Um, and I, I think it's important that your voice be heard as a patient. I think doctors want to be with you, want to work with you. It's a team approach. It's not only the patient, it's the nurses, it's the social workers, it's uh, the nutritionist, et cetera. So you as a patient need to 
not consider yourself a victim of cancer, which we all are, you know, if we diagnose with cancer in some respects, but more of someone, I have an illness. Frequently, cancer day is a chronic illness. Don't walk out here thinking you're dying. You're not dying. We're talking about living. Let's talk about how we're going to live, not how we're going to die. You're going to live for many, many years because of research. So there's always hope, optimism for the future. Great. Well, these are uh, great messages, I think, David, for people to to take forward. And uh, as I said earlier, I think we've covered some of the very exciting new areas and important areas in cancer care uh, and research today. We're going to come back to uh, many of these topics in future episodes. And I know, David, the program you lead here at Weill Cornell has active clinical and research areas uh, in or activities in, in each of these areas. So um, there's a lot happening uh, and uh, it's really exciting. I think we have a ways to go in some of these areas, but many uh, of these new technologies and new approaches are even already benefiting patients today. So I want to thank uh, Dr. David Nanis, Chief of Hematology and Medical Oncology at Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian Hospital, again, for joining us today for this session. And we look forward to future discussions uh, on many of these and other areas. I want to uh, encourage our audience uh, that you can feel free to uh, email us at cancercast at med.cornell.edu. Again, that's cancercast at med.cornell.edu. You can uh, send us questions, comments, topics you'd like to hear us cover more in depth in the future. Uh, and uh, we'd very, be very happy to have your feedback. That's it today for CancerCast, conversations about new developments in medicine, cancer care, and research. I'm Dr. John Leonard. Thank you very much for tuning in. If you or a loved one is undergoing cancer treatment, rehabilitation medicine can help with recovery and ease painful side effects. Listen to Back to Health, while Cornell Medicine's podcast series dedicated to rehabilitative medicine to learn more about the ways psychiatrists can help. All information contained in this podcast is intended for informational and educational purposes. The information is not intended nor suited to be a replacement or substitute for professional medical treatment or for professional medical advice relative to a specific medical question or condition. We urge you to always seek the advice of your physician or medical professional with respect to your medical condition or questions. While Cornell Medicine makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast, and any reliance on such information is done at your own risk. Participants may have consulting, equity, board board membership, or other relationships with pharmaceutical, biotech, or device companies unrelated to their role in this podcast. No payments have been made by any company to endorse any treatments, devices, or procedures. And while Cornell Medicine does not endorse, approve, or recommend any product, service, or entity mentioned in this podcast. Opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker and do not represent the perspectives of Weill Cornell Medicine as an institution.